1: Now it came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and Joseph also to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to enroll himself with Mary who was betrothed to him, being great with child. While they were there. She gave birth.
0: The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, English Revised Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books and part time health consultant. He buys the cough drops we keep in the studio for people to use during recording. Today on Anchored by Truth, As we approach Thanksgiving and Christmas, we want to continue our series where we focus on the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. And we want to continue listening to Crystal Sea Book's epic Christmas poem, The Golden Tree, Eagle Enigma. Today, we're coming to Part 3 of the poem, where the action starts to get a little more intense. Is that a fair statement, R.D.?
2: I think so. For any listeners who weren't able to be with us for our last couple of episodes, we should tell them that The Golden Tree, Eagle Enigma, is a poem that is written in the style of some of the classic Christmas stories. It was also written using the model of the old-time movie serials that they used to play when I was a kid, and when you went to the theater on Saturday afternoons to see a movie, before the movie, they'd always show you this little short feature, five to ten minutes, and every time the short feature would end... It would end with the hero or the heroine being in a desperate position, often hanging on the edge of a cliff. And so, of course, that's why they called them cliffhangers. Well, before each movie, they would give you the latest installment of that ongoing saga. So, when I wrote the Golden Tree Komari's Quest, which was the first part of the overall story, I wrote it in that style and people liked it so much, I wrote another one and that became Golden Tree Eagle Enigma. So to get ready for part three of Eagle Enigma, listeners need to know that this epic poem is all about a group of small koala bears who live in a valley in the Arctic. And a group of the bear's ancestors settled in the valley because in the center of the valley there is a golden tree. And that golden tree transformed this Arctic valley into a place where koala bears can not only live but also thrive. Well, there have been several generations of the bears living in the valley, but in the current Christmas season in the valley, an unexpected danger has come to threaten the valley, the tree, and the lives of the bears. The tree's last guardian, a bear named Komari, vanished a while ago in a confrontation with the fearsome demon lord. And since Komari vanished, no bear has been able to pass the tests to become the tree's new guardian. And so the bears don't know whether the golden tree can survive without a guardian to care for it. So the bears are afraid they're going to have to send out a search party on a dangerous quest to find the lair of their creator, who they call the Great White Koala Bear, because the bears think they may need his help in order to save their tree.
0: All right then, let's continue with the story. Here's Part 3 of Crystal Sea Book's Christmas Epic Poem, THE GOLDEN TREE, Eagle ENIGMA The stout little bear called Kojon added in deep, hearty voice,
1: The gulf is so deep and stretches so wide that a traveler is left with no choice. To cross such a gap would take more than a bear, even one brave and true. Good bear elders, have you no wisdom that would help an explorer get through?
0: The second bear elder sadly shook her head and spoke with a mournful sound. Alas, we elders possess no secret for survival on that dangerous ground. Still we believe that our only hope is to find the great white bear. For if the tree dies, we'll have no bright gleam to keep this valley so fair. For a moment, silence covered the bears till a bear called Kodan was heard.
2: Good bear people, I know very little, but why are we so disturbed? The light of the tree remains still strong and the harvest this year was firm. It seems to me we need no search, but if we do, I will take my turn. If the elders believe that we must seek the lair of the one we worship and serve, the dangers to be faced are small compared to the number of lives to preserve. I will go north this great gap to see, and risk being eagle prey if the great white bear knows what we seek then he will open the way
0: for a great while longer discussion ensued but all the bears finally agreed that kodan, koru and kojan to the northern ice would proceed Early next day, the three koalas, setting out, trekking due north, all the village came to wish them bear speed and encourage them as they went forth. After a long day's march, they left the valley, where the winter was softened by the tree. Once they did, arctic weather took hold, and their trek became misery. For many days, they fought ice and snow and struggled to continue their quest. Bitter winter winds cruelly lashed each one, fierce cold never giving them rest. After many days, the mountains grew steep, so they began the upward climb. They slipped and fell as they ascended the slope and retraced their steps many times. Despair had nearly conquered their hearts, for the slopes grew ever steeper. But they would not slow or even pause, for the need in their hearts grew deeper. Near the top, they were finally forced to stop and take some rest. But the draining climb led them to believe these mountains were their final test. They sensed the great height of the peaks, kept something hidden from view, something wonderful, perhaps their goal. So they started their climb anew. Kodan went first as they resumed the climb, followed by Koru and Kojan. His climbing was steady, for he worked in wood, and his shoulders and arms were strong. He grabbed a rock quite near the top and hoisted above the crest. The sight he saw stole his breath, and fear and fright seized his chest. Kojan and Koru could instantly sense something dire had come to the throng, so the others quickly moved to the top and knew their quest had gone wrong, for now all the bears were able to see. What had made Kodan stop and pause, they all relinquished, remaining hope, and were ready to abandon their cause. Okay, as the old-timers, like me, right, used to say, quote, the plot continues to thicken." unquote. The bears have decided they have to risk the search for the home of the great white bear. But as they feared, the quest is not only hard, but dangerous. Obviously, you drew part of your inspiration for this story from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where the Apostle Paul tells us that our struggle is, quote, "...not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness." Against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly
2: places. Unquote. Right. You know, someone once said that the devil's best weapon is to convince people that he doesn't even exist. Because if he can convince people that he doesn't exist, then nobody will be on guard against him. And that's why it's such a good idea for mature believers to listen to or read stories to their kids or grandkids. Because they can introduce those kids or their grandkids to the real struggles that life contains, and they can help their kids or grandkids prepare for those struggles. They can prepare their kids or grandkids to become overcomers. And, of course, the best strategy for becoming an overcomer is to be so familiar with the truth that lies and deception become immediately identifiable.
0: And, of course, that's why we do Anchored by Truth to remind people that the Bible, in the words of Psalm 46, is a, quote, very present help in time of trouble, unquote. But people aren't likely to turn to the Bible to help them in times of trouble if they aren't confident that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy. So that's why we focus on using evidence and logic to demonstrate that we have very good reasons for believing that the Bible is the very Word of God.
2: yes. Everybody at some point in their life is going to ask the question, Why am I here? It's one of the most obvious questions that arises from the human experience. But whether most people realize it or not, the answer to that question is inexorably tied to three other questions. Is there a God? If there is a God, does He communicate with His people? Or, said differently, is the Bible the Word of God? And if there is a God, and the Bible is His Word, Can I learn what I need about my life, my needs, and my purpose by studying the Bible? Well, of course, here at Anchored by Truth, we think that the answer to all three of those questions is a resounding yes. But we would quickly admit that unless people are convinced that the Bible is more than just an aggregated collection of fairy tale and myth, that those people are very unlikely to find the Bible relevant to their lives. So that's why we think it's so important for people to study the Bible so that they can discover the answers to those questions for themselves, and so they can find out that the Bible really is not just an ancient book passed down from generation to generation, but it's a book that is very relevant to the lives that we live today.
0: I noticed that you said study the Bible, not just read the Bible. What you're observing is that understanding the Bible confidently and contextually demands effort, right? I mean, that sort of runs against the old method of letting the Bible just fall open and then reading the first verse that comes to your attention.
2: Well, I wouldn't try to restrict the Lord's ability to communicate to any particular person in any way he chooses, but randomly or haphazardly reading selected portions of the Bible isn't likely to help people answer the question why am I here? I am fully persuaded that the Lord will reveal himself to anyone and everyone who seeks to truly know him. But our relationship with the Lord, and the Lord is, after all, first and foremost, a person, our relationship with the Lord is just like a relationship with anyone else in our lives. The quality of our relationship will be dependent on the quality and quantity of the time we spend with the Lord. And because the Bible was written in a different time and era, we do need to do some study on the times, the customs, and the cultures that form the setting for the Bible. And unfortunately, because so much misinformation circulates in our own culture today about the Bible, well, contemporary Christians really need to make an extra effort to arm themselves to be able to respond to that misinformation, to be able to respond to certain very common errors.
0: Such as the erroneous assertion that Jesus wasn't a real person, that he didn't live a real life, eat, walk, and sleep like normal human beings, and that despite being fully human, He didn't also demonstrate that he was fully divine by rising out of a stone tomb after being killed by the most powerful empire on the earth at the time. So that takes us back to our review of some examples that Jesus' earthly existence is confirmed by sources outside of the Bible. Last time, we took a look at two examples of other ancient historians who mentioned Jesus in their histories, the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus. Both are considered reliable historians. Both wrote their histories within a relatively short period after Jesus' earthly life. And both wrote accounts that confirm some of the details in scripture. So, where do you want to start today?
2: Well, let's take a look at another Roman historian, Suetonius. Suetonius was a Roman historian and analyst in the imperial house under the emperor Hadrian. And Suetonius' writings about Christians describe their treatment under the Emperor Claudius. Claudius reigned from 41 AD to 54 AD. So I'm quoting Suetonius now. Because the Jews at Rome caused constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, Claudius, expelled them from the city. Talking about the city of Rome. Now this expulsion took place in 49 AD. In another work of his, Suetonius wrote about the fire that destroyed Rome in 64 AD under the reign of the Emperor Nero. Now, Nero blamed the Christians for this fire because they were a convenient target, and he punished Christians very severely, supposedly, for their causing the fire. So again, this is what Suetonius wrote, quote, Nero inflicted punishment on the Christians, a sect given to a new and mischievous religious belief, unquote. So, from these quotes from Suetonius, we can see that an awareness of Jesus had spread all the way to Rome in less than 20 years after Jesus had died. And this awareness was so strong that the emperor himself had taken personal notice of Jesus' followers, and apparently the emperor felt the need to try to minimize the influence of those Christians in that capital city of Rome.
0: And again, just to remind everyone of what we mentioned last time, the fact that Roman historians and even Roman emperors would take notice of Jesus is remarkable. It wasn't as if Jesus had led a conquering army that was threatening to lay siege to Rome or even one of the outlying provinces. And Suetonius' observation that the Christians had, quote, a new and mischievous religious belief, unquote, is particularly fascinating. When you think about the pantheon of gods with which the Romans were thoroughly familiar, not only their own gods, but also the Greek gods and the gods of all the people they had conquered, when you think about the vast variety of religious beliefs with which they were acquainted, what could be considered new and mischievous?
2: Well, of course, many scholars believe that Suetonius was quite likely referring to the physical resurrection of Jesus. Now, obviously, the Romans were well familiar with various beliefs of life after death, But none of those belief systems with which they were familiar ever included a person, a flesh-and-blood man, getting up out of a grave, walking around, talking, eating, and even touching people after being crucified. For the Romans, that would have been new and novel.
0: Still is. I've never seen it, though I thoroughly believe it happened. Who's next?
2: Well, let's take a look at two sources who wrote about Jesus, but for whom we don't have any currently extant copies of their writings, Thallus and Phlegon.
0: Well, if there are no existing copies of their manuscripts, how can we know what they wrote?
2: Well, just like today, there were other writers who did read what Thallus and Phlegon wrote, and those other writers preserved some of the material by quoting it in documents that they themselves were preparing. It's just like someone may not have gone to a political event, but they can know what the speaker at the political event said by reading quotes and articles that were written by people who were there. In Thallus's case, parts of his histories were preserved by Julius Africanus, who wrote around 221 AD. In Phlegon's case, not only did Julius Africanus record some of his material, but so did Origen, who was an early church scholar and theologian.
0: So what observation did Julius Africanus preserve from Thallus' writings that pertain to Jesus?
2: Well, let me read a quote from Julius Africanus. This is a quote. On the world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness Thallus, in the third book of his history, calls, as it appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun, that's a quote from Julius Africanus' chronography in chapter 18. So, Thallus had apparently written more than one book of history, but at least in one of his books he took note of the darkness and the earthquake that accompanied Christ's crucifixion. And Thallus's record of those events parallel precisely the account that Matthew gave us in chapter 27 of his Gospel.
0: And Luke also wrote about the darkness. The Gospel of Luke chapter 23 verses 44 through 47 say, quote, and it was now about the sixth hour, and a darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, the sun's light failing, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. And when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man, unquote. So it's very interesting that a secular historian like Thallus would mention the same detail that is present in Matthew and Luke. And if I remember correctly, Thallus' observations are particularly important because many scholars believe he wrote around 52 AD. In fact, he may have been the earliest secular writer to comment on the events surrounding the crucifixion. Well, what about Phlegon?
2: Well, let me read three quotes. The first is preserved by Julius Africanus, and the second two were preserved by Origen. Again, I'm quoting now. Phlegon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar, at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth to the ninth hour. That quote was preserved by Julius Africanus. And with regard to the eclipse in the time of Tiberius Caesar, in whose reign Jesus appears to have been crucified and the great earthquakes which then took place, That was a quote preserved by Origen in his book Against Salus in chapter 2. Another quote from Origen, Jesus, while alive, was of no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed how his hands had been pierced by the nails. Again, that's another quote by Origen in his book Against Salus from chapter 2. So, we learn several things from these various quotes that we got from the material that was preserved from Phlegon. First, Phlegon confirms the darkness that was also mentioned by Matthew, Luke, and Thallus. Second, Phlegon confirms that Jesus was crucified and he gives us a specific time reference for Jesus' crucifixion during the reign of Tiberius. And third, Phlegon confirms the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, including that Jesus showed the marks of his crucifixion to those to whom he appeared.
0: Well, that's even more amazing, because now we know the secular historians of the 1st and 2nd century AD were not only aware of Jesus' life and ministry, but they were also familiar with many of the details that surrounded his death and resurrection. But that does pose a question. Since Julius Africanus and Origen were both admitted Christians, is it possible they fabricated the quotes they attributed to Thallus and Phlegon?
2: Well, it's not impossible, but why would they have done that?
0: I think critics would say they would have fabricated the quotes to make their case for the truth of Christianity stronger.
2: Well, if they had tried to do that, in their day, it actually would have had the opposite effect. I mean, first, remember that even though copies of the writings from Thallus and Phlegon are not extant today, they certainly were in existence at the time that Julius Africanus and Origen wrote and quoted from them. If Julius Africanus and Origen had gotten it wrong, it would have been very easy for their own critics to point out their errors. Second, Africanus and Origen were writing at the time when there was substantial official opposition to Christianity. In other words, they were writing in a hostile world. So as such, Africanus and Origen would have taken even greater pains to be sure that they would not be easily subject to their material being refuted. Third, Origen's quotes of Phlegon came from a work that was entitled Contra Celsum, or in English, that's against Celsus. So Origen was writing a work to refute the claims of a figure named Celsus, who had written a work entitled The True Doctrine. Well, The True Doctrine was essentially written under the authority of a Roman emperor who was critical of Christianity. So because Origen was writing to refute a book that had been prepared under official Roman sanction, accuracy would have been absolutely essential to Origen. And most scholars do agree that Origen was a very reliable source for what Flagon said. So, why would Origen have handed his opponents such an easy method for dismissing his criticism? So again, even though copies of the writings of Thallus and Flagon don't exist today, they certainly did exist at the time that Africanus and Origen prepared their original material, so if they'd gotten things wrong, it would have been very easy to push back on them to throw it back in their face.
0: That all makes a lot of sense and it points to a broader implication of the extra-biblical sources that you've been citing. None of the observers themselves, including Thallus or Phlegon, were friendly to Christianity. So theirs were essentially the observation of hostile witnesses. As such, when they confirm details of the biblical account, their testimony of Jesus' life has even greater weight. If they thought that Jesus was a fraud or a fabrication, it would have been easy for them not to mention him.
2: And just one more point to note before we close. In these episodes, we certainly have not been able to cover all of the extra-biblical sources that can confirm Jesus' life, ministry, and death. There's a book called The Historical Jesus by Dr. Gary Habermas that contains a much more exhaustive treatment on this subject, and of course there's plenty of material on the internet. So we really would encourage the listeners to end with the material that we've offered in this episode today, but let this be the starting point for them to go and do their own research to assure themselves that there is not only biblical confirmation, but there is an abundance of extra-biblical confirmation for the life of Jesus, including many of the details of his life and death.
0: We wanted to point listeners to all these resources, including the links we put on our podcast notes, to enable them to continue their own studies about the life and ministry of Jesus. To answer the question, why am I here, we need to understand why any of us are here. Let's close with prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer of the one who leads into a knowledge of truth, the Holy Spirit.
1: a prayer of adoration of the Holy Spirit great and mighty God you are the searcher of men's hearts and the only true joy for their souls we worship gladly the Father Son and Holy Spirit Holy Spirit you rule and reign with the Father and the Son when the Son completed his work and ascended to the Father you came to be our comforter instructor and advocate you came to take away our spiritual blindness and to make us alive to things of god at pentecost you affirmed your presence in the world and established your dominion in the hearts of those who belong to the Son. praise be to the one who tells us the truth about jesus and who strengthens us against the forces of powers of wickedness that attack us in our humanity Left to ourselves, we could never stand against the wiles of the evil one. But in you, we have victory, for greater are you than Satan who is in the world. You are worthy of exaltation and adoration, for you are fully God and Lord. You regenerate our hearts and bring light to our minds. Since you fully possess all knowledge and wisdom, you are the supreme teacher who not only imparts wisdom but also gives us the capacity to absorb and understand that which you teach. Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive to your leading, and we praise you for being the faithful minister to our souls. Time and time again, you have gone before us to find the path that we should travel. You have never left us, even in those times we have grieved you or resisted your work. Finite man cannot fully comprehend the wondrous relationship that is shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that the three persons of the Holy Trinity are perfect in unity, holiness, and beauty. We marvel at the grace manifested to us by the Father's sending, the Son's coming, and the Spirit's abiding. Surely such love deserves the response of full dedication to the One who first loved us and we pray that such commitment might mark our lives. We lift our voices in songs of adoration, and with the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is our God, and worthy to be praised. We bow before the light of our lives, the Lord of the universe, the Lamb of God. In Christ's precious name we pray and give thanks. Amen.
0: We hope you'll be with us next time as we continue our discussion on the reality of Jesus' life. We hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of the show. Also, we'd like to remind listeners that copies of The Golden Tree, Kumari's Quest, are available from our website. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're we're not famous, famous, but our boss is.